Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. This week, fresh from performing 25 one-woman shows at The Fringe, I'm delighted to be featuring 26-year-old New York comedian Emily Wilson. Hey guys, it's Emily. Tonight I will be doing a show for you about the worst one out of all of these. But the most fun one to share with you too You see I made it onto live TV And suddenly everybody knew my name It was totally amazing And life-changing in a bad way <laughs> I watched Emily perform Fixed at a comedy club in London's King's Cross Just before she headed off to Edinburgh we met thanks to the show's director, writer and producer, Sam Blumenfeld, who happened to be staying at ours. Emily shares the humiliating and crushing story of being a finalist on The X Factor USA when she was just 15, performing in front of Simon Cowell, Nicole Scherzinger, Paula Abdul and record boss L.A. Reid, who signed the likes of Justin Bieber and Mariah Carey. After auditioning for the biggest talent show in the world, singing in a duo with her best friend and schoolgirl crush Austin, there was only one problem. The judges loved Austin, but hated Emily. I'm sorry for awesome, no, but I believe in you, Austin. Through hysterical, self-deprecating stand-up, archive footage and original songs, Emily transports the audience back to 2011 and the embarrassing moments for a rollercoaster journey through boot camp to the finals. And boy, do we share her pain. Emily, it's fantastic to see you again. I'm dying to ask, how was your first Fringe? Thank you. Yeah, it's, thank you so much for having me on. It's so fun to hear all that, especially after this long month. It's been fantastic. I don't have a single complaint. I feel like it was, I mean, except for how exhausted I am. I feel like my brain, <laughs> my brain is fried and I am so, I'm more tired than I've ever been, but it's been fantastic. I mean, there's just nothing like this in America where you can do a show for an entire month in this like citywide festival of all these other brilliant shows and people and to be able to do something every day and work on it during the day. Sam and I would work on it and like try out our tweaks at night and then see the audience grow and see the word of mouth. And it's just been absolutely incredible, life-changing, truly. Has it really been life-changing? Yeah, I mean, I, I I feel like that sounds dramatic, but in, in terms <laughs> of like, as a performer and a writer, I think this was like going to a boot camp of its own, of just like having to put a show on every single night, an hour long show, having to get people to come to it, having to like not feel crazy saying the same thing every night for a whole month and like on your body having to perform it. And it's just like, yeah, it, it's a true like test, I think. And getting through it, you know, I was talking to other comedians yesterday. It's like just getting through it. You feel like you've earned some kind of badge on, on your vest as a comedian because it's just been so insane. Yeah. I'm really embarrassed to confess, but having been born in the UK and lived here all my life, I've never been to the Fringe and I've had friends perform there too. So I've no idea really what the atmosphere is like or what the whole experience feels like, never mind actually performing. I mean, was the atmosphere just electric up there because you've got this whole gaggle of performers doing their own thing? 
Yeah. I mean, when Sam and I got here from London, it was like we'd got here the Sunday before it started. And already it was like there was this energy in the air of something about to like start and begin. And Sarah Sherman, I think, made the the comparison of like it's a theater kids like Lollapalooza. It's like just festival of all these kids who grew up doing art in some way, shape or form and then now doing all these shows. And yeah, it's like this electric, incredible energy that I could have never, I, I was expecting it, but I could have never predicted it to feel just how amazing it felt. And also I was talking to some other UK comics and they were saying like, this year was a quote unquote quiet fringe compared to the past. And I'm like, if this is what's quiet, I cannot imagine what it was like in 2019, 2018 and, and all the years before that. Because to me, this was like nuts. So yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy and special. Having watched you perform in King's Cross and it was an hour long show, as you say, and an hour doesn't sound that long. But at the end of it, Apart from the fact I really enjoyed it, my ribs were hurting because I'd laugh so much. It did cross my mind. How do you stay fresh night after night after night? Because you sing, you remember all the words. I know I'm sure you're ad-libbing some of it, but there's a structure to the show. There's a lot of pressure on your shoulders, even though obviously you're supported behind the scenes by a great team. How do you dig deep enough to give a good enough performance every time because it has to be your best doesn't it when people come and see you yeah I mean that was a huge I, I don't want to say hurdle because it wasn't like it, it's more like you have to choose to kind of commit to that in a way because look people can show up and you can give them 80% of it or you can give them 100% every time and I feel like most comedians want people to come to a show and see them at 100% and I think this experience really put that to the test especially because Fixed, my show is very, it's a script. Like I am down to the word scripted because it's such a story and it's like, you know, we're fitting it into an hour. It's like, there's so much more I could be saying about what happened, but really we're like, we've like condensed it down to an hour. And so it's like, I don't really have room to go off beat or like there's, we put spots in for like a kind of like aside to a crowd, to an audience member or something, but really, yeah, it's like I'm sticking to this script and I had to learn how to like remember, first of all, that everybody who sees this show, it's their first time hearing these words. They have not said them over and over again. This is all brand new information to them. And usually like, especially when it's a full room, you look at their faces and you see everything falling on them for the first time. And that's often enough to kind of like ground me in the room in that moment. But also I will say, Sam, who you mentioned up top, before every show, we do this like ritual backstage where we like breathe in and breathe out. And he like always reminds me like, you have to tell the story tonight. You have to like look everybody in the eye and like deliver the story, say and hear every word you're saying. And I think having that like external reminder every night of like, these people are coming here for the first time. It doesn't matter that it's night 24, 25 for you. It doesn't matter that you got four hours of sleep and you want to go home. Like you've got to be there and tell the story. And the truth is as hard as it is and as exhausting as it gets by the end, when I show up and bring 100% of myself, the show is always better for it. And so learning that, it kind of pushes you through every moment each night. And it paid off. You got some fantastic reviews. And it was exciting for us actually here in London to watch, you know, people like The Guardian coming to your show and reviewing it. How did it go down audience wise and what kind of feedback did you get? 
Yeah, it was fantastic to see reviews, especially because, you know, I didn't have like press at all in America. And so, so much of bringing the show here was like me telling people like, trust me, it's good. I promise it's good. Like there was no like official press, really. We, we got a write up in the New York Times in June of like what to see in New York. But beyond that, there was no official reviews or anything. So to see a reaction in another country too to this to this story and the show was like so incredible and amazing. And then, yeah, the audiences have been fantastic. I mean, we've had our fair mix of nights where whether it's me, whether it's something in the air or whether it's like the age range, I found that the age range of the audience is the most indicative of how like rowdy and wild it's going to be. And this is not, you know, I welcome everybody and anybody to the show, of course, but I find that like if you were born before 19... 55 there's just a lot of references that start to fly over your head and naturally you know with a with good reviews a lot of the people who go online and read reviews and buy advanced tickets tend to be not people born in the 90s or not people who are going to get all these little references to certain jokes and so i found when the audience like leaned older i would have to you know call that out sometimes or just like deal with it in a way of like bringing more presence or like leaning on more of the storytelling. But other than that, I think I've been, especially for this Fringe and other people, I, what I've heard about other shows, I feel like I've been so lucky with the turnout and the like graciousness of the audience and their attentiveness. It's, it's been amazing. X Factor was absolutely enormous here, probably just as big as it was in the USA. And so you got onto a good start with that in that everybody loves stories about the X Factor. I mean, your one woman shows come out of a pretty bruising and humiliating experience when you were so young, Emily, you were only 15 and so impressionable. Tell us the X Factor story, if you would, of what happened when X Factor came rolling into New Jersey, which is where you're from. Yeah. So basically I was born in 96 and I was this kid who I loved to sing and I wanted to be famous and that whole millennial Gen Z type upbringing and childhood. And then, yeah, when I was 15, I had my best friend, Austin. We had a YouTube channel where we'd post covers of us singing songs, different pop songs. And then The X Factor was doing their first season in America. And it had just the year before broken One Direction. And obviously we knew it was this huge show. And for X Factor, the age you only you had to be 12 to audition, whereas American Idol was 16. <laughs> yeah. And with X Factor, you could do groups, whereas American Idol, you had to be a solo artist. So for me and Austin, we called ourselves awesome. Austin and Emily, you know, the word awesome. <laughs> and so for us, X Factor, it was like this amazing opportunity. And we like woke up at 4 a.m. We waited in line for hours with hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people, really. And we did the whole thing and we auditioned and we got through to the, you know, because there's like rounds of producer auditions, like in these like rooms with like just producer people. And then when you make it through those, you eventually get to the TV one that gets filmed. And so we made it that far. And then, yeah, when we got to the audition, we sang our song and Simon liked us, which my boyfriend's dad always says, he's like, yeah, you know, when Simon likes you, that's when it's really bad. Because if he's being nice, clearly it's like so far gone. I think the audience you are aiming at will understand you perfectly. That's why you have such support. Gonna say yes. But he liked us. And then L.A. Reid, who was, you know, Justin Bieber's producer, the first words out of his mouth were, Austin, I think you're a star. And no disrespect, but I'm not convinced of the duo. But because I believe you're a star, I'm going to say yes. And so the audition played out as this like 
we love him. We don't like her. They threatened to split us up. And it was this whole like 45 minute long debacle in real life, deciding if they were going to split us up and send him on and send me home, which in the end, they wound up keeping us together, sending us on. And then we made it all the way to the top 12, got put into a bigger group at boot camp. And it was this like nightmarish, like up and down, getting totally taken advantage of, feeling like my dreams were coming true, but also like I didn't deserve to be there anymore. And this just like crazy journey that wound up ending in just like, yeah, we got eliminated. And then like, it was over and just as quickly I was back at school and going back to my normal life. So yeah, it was this like six month whirlwind as I was this like American teenager who started out with bright doe-eyed excitement for this like journey and then wound up being crushed and, and seeing those shows for what they really are. We got a, a little clip actually of your first audition and I know you play it every night so I'm sure you're not going to cringe but you sang Jar of Hearts by Christina Perry didn't you and I'm just wondering what your memories are of walking out and onto that stage this massive moment for you both how you felt and, and how you felt when you realized that Simon liked you and then there was a bit of disgruntlement or disagreement with the judges. Walking out there I remember it was like so surreal. There's a certain point when it's like, you know, it was like an audience of like 10,000 people. And at a certain point, that many people just becomes a wall of sound. There's almost, and I feel that way with comedy too, of like the bigger shows I've done where it's like a huge crowd. When it's more people, it just becomes this like wall of noise. Whereas like even the room I have here at the fringe, you know, the capacity, it's like a hundred people there's an intimacy to it where like I can see everybody's face and like that's almost more you've got to make sure the whole room is on your side whereas at a certain point when it's so many people it's just noise and so I remember feeling that when I went out on the stage it was just this like sea of bodies and them just all clapping when we walked out you know they clap for everybody and then we sing our song and in the moment it felt like amazing and truly like everything I had ever wanted and don't you know I'm not your ghost anymore Simon liking us was this like huge like oh my god Simon likes us like hell yeah and then we had our friends in the corner you could see them with the posters and then like I've had some shows where I've like re-felt this when I heard those words like Austin I think you're a star I remember like my whole body going cold and this just like feeling of everything it's, it sounds dramatic and sad but it's funny to me now but like everything I ever knew about myself and what I was doing, it just flipped on its head in that one singular moment. And I felt shocked and just like completely gaslit by myself almost. I had grown up thinking I was this like amazing singer and this star destined for fame and everything. And then in a split second, I remember those words like sinking into my bones and being like, oh my God. And then, yeah, it lasted for like, 45 minutes of them keeping me on stage deciding what to do with me and it was just like my world 
flipping on its side, upside down, really. I remember the Austin, I think you're a star. I remember that settling in, but a lot of it, honestly, is like blacked out in my brain. And I just like don't remember much more than that like first moment. I think what you do so beautifully in the show is through your original song, which we'll talk about in a minute, because I think your songs were a really key part of the whole performance for me. You're very self-deprecating and they're very well written and actually do show that you have got an awesome, sorry for the choice of word there, awesome, see what I did there, (laughs) voice and a very strong voice. But where it really brought it home to me was when you'd been on this roller coaster of highs and lows and then you're out of the competition and they bring you back sort of One Direction style. But the bit where you had me in stitches where they bring you back in a band of 10 where two of the members were 12 (laughs) and called it intensity. (laughs) That must have been such a weird feeling that one minute you're out, the next minute you're in, and then you're in a sort of high school musical band. Yeah, it was truly like so strange. And also for me specifically, because I was the only one in it that had received negative feedback. I was there feeling like I'm so lucky to still be here because I knew they didn't even like me. And then I get put in this like bigger group where I'm like blending even more into the background. And like none of them, nobody wanted, no kid who's going on a show to be a solo artist wants to be placed in this like ensemble like glee-esque nightmare of a group we're being told is amazing where none of us bought it none of us wanted to be in it yeah it was truly bizarre but also we were like sure if it means we're still on the show and still might like get famous then yeah yeah it was truly like so nuts And you weren't even the only Emily, were you, in the band? Nope. Yeah, there was a whole other Emily. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. When you got back, what was it like going back home? And what was the reaction of your schoolmates and your friends and your peers and your family? Lucky enough, we were still at the age and from a town where like the fact that we were on TV was so cool in itself that the means of how and like the content of what happened, at least to me, I don't know what was, I'll never know, I guess, what was said behind my back. But to me, it felt as if like the cool factor of having been on TV trumped, I hate using that word, but trumped everything else that had happened on the show. But going back, I mean, I remember... I was just catching up on school and I just remember it was like, well, that's clearly not a valid and viable way to create a life for myself. I like dove back into grades and school and got a job and like tried to figure out what I wanted. My my family was very like loving and supportive. And I think to them, to this day, my parents saw the show in New York in June for the first time. And I remember my dad saying to me after, like, I had no idea. I mean, he didn't even realize he was like, when you guys were doing, when you and Austin were making those videos, those covers, like, I didn't even realize that it wasn't more than just a hobby. And then even the show, and I I mentioned this in the show, I have a bit towards the end of like, when the audition aired, regardless of how brutal it was, it was just so cool that we were on TV and that we were still going to be going out, moving to California to be on TV. And so, so much of it and so much of my like facing it now, 10 years later is like, reckoning with oh my god it was this thing where I was feeling so much pain and humiliation but like there was this outer layer of like you should put that on your resume you were on tv it was so awesome and it was like 
Yeah, but no, it wasn't. My self-esteem and my self-worth were like torn to shreds. And like, granted, I don't say that with any woe is me. There's much, much of me now that believes I like, or that is grateful that I, that it happened because I like who I am today because of that experience. And I very much fear who I could have been if I was never shut down at such an early age and how cringy and, and how much I might hate myself in my thirties if I had a much longer journey trying to become this like famous singer or whatever. But yeah, it feels like at the time it was not acknowledged what awful and damaging of an experience it was beyond like how cool it was that it even happened. That's nice in a way to hear you say that. I mean, obviously it was a damaging experience, presumably at the time, but also in some ways perhaps shaped you. And you stood up there as a 26-year-old woman in King's Cross and delivered, well, I thought a fantastic one-woman show. Thank what you. was the point, Emily? What made you think, actually, what happened to me when I was 15? There's a lot of humor in this and I can make this into a show. You know, I've been doing stand-up five and a half years, which sounds, maybe sounds long, but in the stand-up world, that's like baby level still. And coming out of COVID and getting back to shows, writing new jokes, I so vividly remember my boyfriend and his little brother, who at the time was 15, and he was asking me, because I never talked about X Factor, and I mentioned this in the show, it was like, I totally wiped it out of my life, and if it would come up, I brushed it off, and I never ever spoke about it. And my boyfriend's little brother, who I've known him for eight years now, he was like asking me, he was like, what was that when you were on that show? And I was like, yeah, I'll tell you, you know, it was this thing. And we like looked up the clips on YouTube. And even then I was like, oh my God, you can watch it. I can't look at that. And my boyfriend, John, he was like, M, because I think that day we were like working on a new joke of mine about whatever stupid joke I was working on coming out of COVID. And he was like, this is what you have to talk about on stage. Like, This is the material. And I was like, it sounds so silly now, but I was truly like, what would I even say? It is so ridiculous. Like, I don't even know how I would, like, what would people believe me? Like, what? how would I even talk about this? And he was like, just try writing like 10 minutes about it. And I did. And I did it at me and Sam's weekly show. It was actually last August. I ran a, a sloppy 10 minutes for the first time and seeing the reaction on the audience and seeing how I felt, and I still have the clip of that first set, it was so clear that it was like the most vulnerable I had ever been. The audience was like sucked in and it was like, oh, this is a show. This is something I, I should be talking about. This is like my first hour if I can do it. And it was right around that time too that my friend Zach Zucker, who runs Stamptown here at the Fringe, and that's the company that brought us, he had said to me, he was like, I want to take comedians to the Fringe next year. Do you want to come? And so it was like this meeting of moments of like, oh, this is it. This is what I have to talk about. And I'm going to make an hour about it. And I'll set this deadline of like, I've got a year to write this show. So yeah, it was kind of like this meeting of moments where sometimes it just works out like that, where there was a bunch of different callings from these different directions, like pushing me to talk about this thing. And then as I did, and I did it for the first time in January, it was like truly so rewarding. And it's so clear that it's like, yeah, this is as of now as my first like long-term thing as a stand-up, like this is the story I've got to be sharing. And it's clear, and it's obvious when you watch it, that so much work has gone in, not just by you, but also by Sam. Because sometimes when you go and see stand-up, which is hilariously funny. It's somebody standing up and being hilariously funny and making you laugh. But what you've done very well is the, the comic timing with all the clips that you introduce. I mean, it's cliptastic in terms of you bring that show to life with excerpts, whether it be X Factor or you singing boldly as a three-year-old <laughs> yeah. or, or then your songs, your songs, original songs are great 
tell me about how you thought of introducing all that extra material to help you tell your story. Yeah, that's a great question. Nobody's asked me that. That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> so it was basically like I did musical comedy before writing the show. Like I had one-off songs that I would write. And then in terms of like telling the story and committing to like this is going to be an hour, I knew I'd want music in there. And then with the clips, it's like so much of the story is like you got to see it to believe it. I could tell you what they said, but the impact of seeing Simon Cowell say it to me and seeing the look on my face and all that is like just so much more of a, as you said, you're like, the story comes to life in that way. And so Sam and I got this like bill, uh, billboard, this bulletin board out and we had these like index cards and like we started to see the show in chunks of like footage, music and stand up. And then also there's diary entries in the show as as you remember, I'm sure. And And it was like, that's because as we were like, looking back on the story and how to tell it, I have diaries from every day of this experience that I was like cringily pulling them back up and finding them. And Sam and I were reading these and I was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe the brazen confidence with which before the audition I was talking about like, I'm about to be famous. It's going to be so amazing and like all this stuff. And it was like, oh, this is so it too. We've got to see this in the show. And so it started to become clear what those parts are. And then we have our friend Charlie O'Connor, who's actually uh, UK born and raised. He's British and lives in New York. And he's done all of the production of all of my one-off songs that I had done before the show. We started to come to him and we were like, we're making the show. Will you help us with these songs? And so Sam and I would write lyrics and like have the licks of the melodies and like have most of it in our heads. And then we'd like come to Charlie and be like, we want it to sound like this song, uh, Green Light by Lord meets... Uh, this song by Lady Gaga meets, you know, a mix of it with these references and then uh, Charlie would be like, okay, okay, and he'd start like building it and then we'd put it all together. When you did all that shit as a kid, you'd always have access to it. I love day raising. God. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it was kind of like we'd map it out of what we think it is. And then as we started to write it, it would change and take shape. But yeah, once we saw it was going to be this multimedia thing, it became like, Okay, this story, the lucky part about it is this story is a factual story. So it's like we are following a literal plot and it's just about what medium are we going to use to tell this chunk of it? And like what medium are we going to use? Is it like, do people hear about this through footage? Is this a song that we tell this part with? Is this a diary entry? And then figuring that out and then shaping it over the past couple months and this past month was its own game. But yeah, it, it became clear early on that like this is not a traditional spoken hour. This is like a multimedia, multi-component type story or show, I should say. You touch a bit on your background in the show and actually make us laugh at the beginning. I mean, who are you, Emily Wilson? And what was growing up like for you? Yes. Yeah, I'm a born and born and bred, born and I was going to say born and braised. Born and bred, born and raised. <laughs> born uh, and raised, I like that. Yeah, born and raised. 
Yes, I am from New Jersey. I grew up in a town 45 minutes outside of New York. So naturally, I think I'll never find myself officially leaving the tri-state area because I'm very attached as most tri-state area kids are. But I grew up, uh, and this isn't my show, I grew up in a Republican household, Republican American, but Jewish, which is quite a paradox. You don't find a lot of Jewish Republican families in America, but here I am. And I grew up with three older brothers. I grew up doing musicals and plays and singing and having this YouTube channel with my best friend who I was in love with. And yeah, a a big part of my upbringing was that arts and like singing and all that was always kind of secondary to school and homework and academia. And I'm grateful for that. I'm very grateful that my parents like drilled this, you know, school comes first mentality into me because I do think that that's informed my work ethic on my art, even though it took me a while to think that it could be something I could pursue as a job. And so, yeah, then when this X Factor experience came along after that, it was very much like I returned back to those academic roots. And then finishing high school and going to college, I went to NYU and I studied communications and I kind of was very lost in terms of what I would make of my life and just kind of stuck to the books and learning. And it was through that where I had this like liberal enlightenment as I, <laughs> as I moved to New York City and learned about this like I learned about so I didn't even I had never heard the term mass incarceration I had never even known about just like gender politics and like all of these things where I learned I mean you could ask my boyfriend my freshman year of college I would come home to his dorm every night and be like did you know about this and I'd like read these readings and I just had no idea of like so much of what is taught in a New Jersey town. I mean, granted, there were plenty of Democratic liberal kids in my high school, but like, you know, when you're raised in a household and you, you know, your parents, what they say is Bible to you for a while and your upbringing and like, you don't know much better. And I still respect my parents and so much of like the morals and everything they raised me on. But, you know, moving to New York, I had this like total awakening. And then it was after I graduated college where I started doing stand up again and I found the comedy community and, and it was very much of a, finding my way back to performing where I controlled the narrative. And it wasn't like I wasn't subject to this like greater machine that could determine how the world saw me. It was like, no, I'm in on the joke and I'm going to actually make fun of myself before you can. And and then when I found stand up, it was very much like, oh my God, this is totally it. This is what I want to do. And in many ways, I'm grateful because I, the feeling about X Factor happening, because the feeling I feel with stand up doesn't even compare to how I felt with singing. I mean, I've always been drawn to performing, but like stand up comedy and telling a joke and seeing the laugh fall on an audience is like, I will chase that for the rest of my life. So yeah, once I found that, I, after college, I worked in a coffee shop and my parents, given what I've told you about them, they were very much like, what? Are you sure? And then, I mean, they still supported me. I'm, I'm lucky to have very loving and supporting parents. And I was so, since I was a toddler, you could see in, in the video in the beginning of my show, I'm always like, no, I'll do it. And I was like, I'm, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm doing stand up and this is what I'm doing. And then, yes, for them to come see this show a couple years after me pursuing that, they were very much like, oh my God, we had no idea that it was like this thing that you were really, you're trying to make a life out of. And so it was this nice, Yeah, I feel like I kind of got off track there. But basically, I found my way back to performing in college, and I'm grateful for that. And now, hopefully, I can make a life out of doing it with myself, holding and controlling the microphone and the story. Well, I'm sure you are going to make a life out of it. And I was going to say, you know, what's next and and what's the ambition, Emily? You're you're in 
New York City, which is a, a fantastic place to be for comedy. It's the home of one of my favourite shows, Saturday Night Live. In fact, Heidi Gardner from Saturday Night Live describes you as funnier than everyone you know. Have you got ambitions now to continue with comedy and to make that your full-time career? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I actually quit my day job to come do this festival, and I'm hoping that afterwards I don't have to go back to it and that this can become kind of my main source of income. I mean, I really, with this show, I I, I plan, I know we're going to do a Soho run in London, I think in January. And I'm hoping that between now and then I'll be able to do a residency in New York and maybe do a couple other American cities. And my dream is to be able to sell the show and tape it as a special. And then beyond that, I mean, especially the fringe, something I've really solidified in my bones from being here is like, if I can wake up, every, if my job in my life can be to wake up and perform the shows like the one I'm doing now for the rest of my life, I will be a happy, happy, happy girl for the rest of my life. I mean, this is totally a dream in itself. And I know The Fringe, hopefully it's only the beginning for the life of the show and my career, but it's really shown me that to be able to do this is such a privilege and it's so totally what I plan on doing. And hopefully with Sam, hopefully we can keep creating these one-woman shows, writing them together. And I mean, working with him is just to work and write with your best friend and have them like direct you and, and go through the, the motions with you is like its own joy and privilege. And so, yeah, I really hope that this is just the beginning for shows for this show and shows like this for me. As you know, we've known Sam since he was born. So he's very welcome on our sofa yes. when you come <laughs> yeah. to Soho and we'll come and see you again and yeah. come and hang out and have a drink with you afterwards. But thank you so much. And you've told the story so well and I feel you've really given me a sense of what The Fringe is all about. So I think next year, I think it's got to be a trip to Edinburgh, hasn't it? And yeah. go and experience it for myself. Yeah. yeah, you gotta make it up. And thank you so much for having me. I appreciate all of your very thoughtful questions and for letting me talk about this show. You're very welcome. Best of luck with it, Emily. You've been listening to the talented, funny and self-deprecating New York comedian Emily Wilson, who's just finished a run of 25 one-woman shows at the Edinburgh Fringe and I hope is now off for a well-deserved lie-down. And well done to Sam Blumenfeld for co-writing and producing a cracking hour of comedy. Why, oh God, why did I?